Well, welcome to uh, the Foundry Church on our fourth week in our series on grace. And we're looking at the book of Galatians. Um, and I understand when, when we show something like that and you, you remember all the things you were and, and the, the haunt of life before Christ comes back and we talk about this and we understand and, and we recognize like we look at scripture and we believe, uh, you know, we want to believe. But I want to talk to you day, today about the power of belief. Um, let me ask this. Uh, anybody here ever been a newlywed? Yeah, a few of us. Um, it's a ton of fun, but it's a little bit like having a speedboat race in the fog. There's some collisions. Like you're figuring one another out, but there's more fun than there is harm most of the time, and it's it's a good time. I remember for Erica and I, we um, we were here for our first few months in Michigan, then we went back to Mercy Ships and um, just kind of explored the world together uh, in missions, uh, just I don't know, sharing the gospel and having fun growing together and figuring life out. It's really um, a fascinating thing. Being a newlywed is a lot of fun. I don't want to eat bread in front of the hungry, but it's a lot of fun, right? It's one of those things where you just go, wow, I... I didn't know that, and I, I remember there's times, and I've come to be able to interpret my wife's looks, where um, looking back now, I can see the expression on her face, face was more like, what? The rest of my life, like, it was that kind of face, you know, like, what's wrong with you, man? And I couldn't fix it, but here's the reality. When you're newlyweds, you're working through those issues, and it's a lot of fun. I, wanna, I, want, I want you to just join me. Use your imagination. There's a young couple. And they're newlyweds, about three months in. Things are going really well. Um, they, they come home from work. They have dinner. They go get dinner. Or they just hang out. They have fun. It's a lot of fun being a newlywed. And um, one night, the, the husband on his way home from work is thinking to himself, you know, I really, I want to be worthy of my wife. I want to be worthy of her. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show her how good I am. So he swings by his childhood home. He takes out the trash, he walks the dog, has dinner with mom and dad, eats all his vegetables without being told, and then heads home. And his wife is like, okay, it's a little weird, but whatever. The next night, he does the same thing. So she goes over to his parents' house and looks through the window and is like, what is going on? There he sits, dutifully doing everything he's supposed to do, taking out the trash, walking the dog. He goes upstairs, brushes his teeth, gets into bed early, sets his alarm the next morning, gets up on time without being asked, made himself breakfast, and heads off to work. This goes on for about three or four days before his wife comes to him and says, hey, um, why don't we go on a trip or something and deal with this weirdness? I can't. I can't. I'm sorry, but um, I've got a lot of chores to do. I can't be out past 10, and I'm so close to my 10th gold star on the chart where I get a new Xbox game. But then, anybody like, dude, what's wrong with you? Right? Yeah, you're kind of like, what, what? Why? Why would you trade your newlywed life for going backwards into some weird old system? When we talk about the book of Galatians, I want you to remember that analogy, to remember of the joy of being a newlywed and then going back into an old system that makes no sense. Today we're looking at Galatians chapter three, verses one to nine. And when we look at these scriptures, really what we're gonna talk about is Abraham. 
The Apostle Paul is going to go clear back thousands of years to the great patriarch of faith, Abraham. The three great religions of the world all um, draw the heredity out of Abraham, the Jewish people, the Christians who were grafted in, and then Islam claims him by his first son, by his servant, Hagar, uh, Ishmael. So we know that Abraham is the great patriarch of faith. But the Apostle Paul in the church age talks about Abraham. He pulls him into the the front of the people in the church of Galatia, and he talks to them about Abraham. Why? Why would he talk to them about the patriarch of the Jewish faith that became the Jewish law? Here's one thing I know it isn't about. The Apostle Paul didn't talk to them about what Abraham did to himself to prove his fidelity and his covenant with God. He didn't talk to him about circumcision. It's not what he was dealing with. The Apostle Paul didn't do that. Though that was a primary rule for the men of Israel, it's a physical mark on the body for the men of Israel to prove their fidelity to being of the lineage of Abraham. Abraham was the first to be circumcised. But that's not what Paul talks about. He's not talking about some external symbol of faith. Paul's going to talk about something different. Paul actually goes back to Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, in chapter 15, where God calls to Abraham, and he calls him out of his tent. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been somewhere that doesn't have a lot of natural lighting, and you've looked up at the sky, and it looks like the universe exploded, you can just see so many stars, I can't imagine how vivid and clear the universe looked for Abraham back in the age before any incandescent lighting, and he looked up to the stars of heaven when God said, look to the sky, Abram. And he looks up and he says, I'm gonna give you offspring as numerous as the stars in heaven. To which he had to be like, awesome. But I'm like 90 and so is my wife. So biology and all. Um, but he, you know, he wrestles with God. But here's the thing, he has those feelings. I'm super old, so she, how are we gonna do this? But here's the thing that Paul points out. In Genesis chapter 15, verse six, verse six, it says this, that Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God, and God credited his belief to him as righteousness. God made him righteous for one thing, he believed. He believed the word and the character of God. So Abraham is the very first in a lineage of faith in action. And it's a brave lineage. It's not a lineage of, of easy living. It is a lineage, a lifetime, a heredity of people who live faith in action. It's not some quiet, meek little thing. It's actually an active following of God. The apostle James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, when he wrote his, um, his letter to the church in Jerusalem, he said this, faith without works is dead. Now, he's not calling us to do good works. What James was saying is faith is an internal thing. It's something we are on the inside, and when we have faith, when we have this internal combustion of faith and we believe God, God gets involved internally, and out of the inside, something happens. And it's transformational because the reality for us is we have other things going on inside of us, and we'll talk about that later. But when we talk about Abraham, faith in action. 
going all the way thousands of years forward to James, faith in action. We have to talk about the activity of faith. Paul is saying to the church in Galatians, by bringing up Abraham, he is asking them a question. You began living life in the spirit. Why did you go back to that old way of living that bound you to the rule and the law? Why did you leave the spirit and leave the belief in what you heard to do something because you're not being transformed? Your rules and performances add up to nothing. Why are you doing this? Why did you leave that and walk away? Why are you doing that instead of the inner work of the Holy Spirit working in your life, convicting you of your sin and transforming you from the inside out? But the church in, the, in Galatia thought to themselves that outward signs, the way it looked on the outside, was more important than what was going on internally. But the gospel is a direct claim to the opposite. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. His belief became faith in action. It was an active life. So here's what we know. Abraham is a symbol of the old covenant, and that symbol came through circumcision. And that was an external, visible sign and seal of God's partnership with them. But in this generation, in the church age, the Holy Spirit is the sign and seal of an, but it's an internal sign and seal. It is not a visible thing like circumcision, which was external. It was on the physical body on the outside. This is an internal thing. This is something going on deep within us that we have to reconcile between us and God the way we live this life faithfully and obediently. It is a challenge and it is a clarion call to allow ourselves to be submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit so an internal work is being done in us because there's something far more wrong inside. We can dress it up on the outside and look the part, but quite often we'll be missing the true life we're called to. We'll live by the rules and we'll miss the spirit of God in the gospel. Let's look at Galatians chapter three, uh, chapter three, verses three to nine. It says this, Paul in his most pastoral tone, you foolish Galatians. Everybody wants to read that letter, right? When somebody just starts by calling you names. Um, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed, taught as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. <laughs> Have you ever had your mom or dad ask that rhetorical question? You know, answer me one thing, and deep inside you're like, I don't want to. I don't want to answer that question because I know I'm going to lose. Anybody? Like, I still like, when my mom calls me sometimes, I'm like, please don't ask that question, right? I've had that enough times in my life where I'm like, oh, man, you Galatians are in so much trouble. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit of God by works of the law or by believing in what you heard? Are you so foolish? After the beginning, which by means of the Spirit you came alive, and are you now trying to finish by means of your body, by means of the law? Have you experienced so much in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So again, I'm going to ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? 
Or are you getting this by believing what you heard, by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Remember the apostle Paul, a Hebrew's Hebrew, devoutly following the Jewish code until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. The apostle Paul, so deeply steeped and transformed in his life by following the law of God, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, by knowing it by heart, by following passionately. And now what he's saying is this, that people who are born and have a biological link to Abraham are not his children. Abraham's true children are those who have faith. Faith goes on to say, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, everyone who's not a Jew, by faith. And he announced in the gospel in advance to Abraham when he said to him, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who put their faith in Jesus are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What Paul says in this and what Paul's intending to say is there is nothing you can do to earn or gather to yourself enough credit to merit your salvation. There is no hope for you to earn your way into heaven. It's quite simply impossible. But he points out two different things in this. And they're on like polar opposite sides of the universe. The first thing is this. You and I need to understand something of sin. Sin is not what you do. It's who you are. You are sinful by nature. I am sinful by nature. The very impulses of our being since our earliest years and days have been sinful. We are sinful by nature, period. And our lives, our thoughts, our motivations, even if you sit there and say, not me, think back to your own motivations in life and tell me that's not true. That we're not selfish and greedy. That we don't take for ourselves. That we don't judge and do things at a level we don't even consciously want to. Our nature is flat out sinful. Sin is not what you do. It's who you are. Jesus said it this way. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So out of here, you give voice to it. What he's saying is this. Your heart will tell who you truly are, and eventually it will come out. No matter how many good behaviors, behaviors you put around yourself and all the protection to look the part, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak, and it will betray the fact that you are sinful by nature. Sin is not what you do, it's who you are. But here's the other side of it that gives us so much hope. Righteousness is not what you do, it's who you are in Christ. Righteousness is not what you do. It's not a set of behaviors or actions. Righteousness isn't what you do. It's who you become, it's who you are in Christ Jesus. If you've ever had like a family night, movie night, when you have little kids and you're sitting there and, and you're like, you have a blanket on you and you're sitting there watching like, you know, I don't know, some Disney movie and you're just sitting there and all of a sudden one of the kids is like, can I get under your blanket? I'm cold. And you're like, oh man. Because it's always the kid who has super cold feet and wants to put them on your back. <laughs> Love that kid, right? And they're like, can I get under there? And so you as a parent open the blanket and they snuggle in with their 
freezing little feet and they put them on you and suddenly your warmth is their warmth and they're under this thing with you. When you're in Christ, you're next to him. His righteousness is yours. You are given a righteousness that cannot be removed it cannot be transitioned into something else. It is irrevocable. It is your righteousness given to you by Christ. You're snuggled up next to him. He is laying his blanket over you and pulling you close. It's an intimate thing, but here's the reality. We need to understand how important this is. I don't know, anybody here ever watched Saved by the Bell? Yeah, the guilty pleasure of the 90s. Some of you 40-year-olds are like, no, not me, but we're going to watch that on Hulu later. I know who you are. Um, oh, should I tell the little fact about A.C. Slater? A.C. Slater went to my prom. We looked over. I was in San Diego, and we're like, oh, that's Slater. He didn't talk to us. He was too cool. But anyways, that was weird. Um, so Saved by the Bell. They always had this weird moment where something's going on. They had a ton of weird moments. But um, something's going on at Bayside High in the background. And, you know, like, I don't know, something's happening. And all of a sudden, Zach Morris would step in between the action and the camera. And it would be him. And he would talk to the camera. And everything behind him would kind of freeze. Remember that? Well, if you had watched it, um, you, you would have remembered that. So uh, he would step in between and he would talk. Here's the thing. When we talk about the righteousness of Christ, there's your life going on, sinful by nature and broken. And when God looks at you, he sees the chaos and the brokenness and the history and all those things and the patterns of sin. But what happens when we're in Christ is Christ steps right in between you and God. And what does God see? What becomes the focal point but Jesus Christ himself? Your righteousness is not your activity. It becomes Christ. Christ is your righteousness. He is everything that makes you right in this world in the eyes of God. It's wonderful. He is the one that God sees. He's the one we, that when God looks at us, he sees through the lens of the blood of Christ. There is so much theology around this. There's so much in the Old Testament that points to this. Even Moses, when God was giving him the law, back in Exodus said, God, I wanna see you. So God hid him away in the cleft of a rock which that language is so important because where are you and I hidden? Who is Christ referred to as? He's living water. He's uh, the breath of life, the word of God. He's also known as the rock. And where are we hidden away but in the very cleft? The wounds of Christ, we are hidden away in Christ. There's so much around this that we need to hold on to and understand that it's grace, the unmerited favor, the undeserved favor of God is grace on us. It's given to us when we are in Christ Jesus, not when we're doing good things. So how does it apply to you? How does this apply to you? Maybe you're not like the woman in the video who's ruined everything and everybody talks about and everybody thinks is a joke and when you go back to church, everybody's like, of course, there he is, there she is again. Loser, always thinks they're gonna get it right. You know, they're gonna become super Christian. We know you'll mess up again in a few months. Everybody knows our reputation, but you and hear this church, you are not defined by those things if you are in Christ. You are not defined by those things. You are made righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? Righteousness is the state 
of being morally correct or justifiable, which we could never do on our own, but in Christ Jesus we receive. So if you have a checkered past, if you have brokenness, if you're still working through those willful patterns of sin in your life that you know need to die and you think, I'll never get it right, remember that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents from sending calamity. Why? Because he wants you to be in Christ, that he would see Christ and not you. He wants to love you and extend grace to you. You are made righteous, period, in Christ, in Christ. So why would we as a church go back to our past? Are you so foolish, Paul writes to the church, after beginning by means of the Spirit, you're now trying to finish with your own good works. Are you so foolish to think that the thing you couldn't do before, you can do now? Are you trying to syncretize God's salvation in Jesus Christ and your good works so that in some way you receive credit for it? Paul's saying he'll have none of it in the church in Galatia. The Galatians were in freedom, just like that newlywed couple in the beginning of this teaching. They were in freedom. They were living the dream. They were being transformed and they were changing the world around them. They were having a time of it. And here's the reality. Just like that couple that was happy, they were growing in their love and they were enjoying things. When the husband goes back to a former life to prove something, all it is is weird. Nobody thinks it's cool. Nobody is impressed with the good works of broken people. What people are truly inspired by is the winsome, spirit-filled obedience of people who believed God and that belief has reckoned or credited to them a righteousness they could never earn. And they have received into themselves a holiness and a purity they could have never gotten on their own. And I think Jesus Christ desires his church not to just do good works, but to do the thing Abraham did, to take costly risks without guaranteed outcomes in obedience to him. When his spirit prompts, do we obey, even if it's desperately uncomfortable? I will tell you this, it's far more uncomfortable obeying Jesus Christ than it is living according to the culture of the world. But in Christ, there is a peace that truly does pass understanding. It goes beyond our own mental understanding. And we don't have to hear the words, are you so foolish? Who has bewitched you? Who has tricked you into thinking that by your own actions, by your own goodness, by your own whatever, you're worthy, you are worthy only in Christ. Do you believe it? Because if you believe it, something internally is gonna change. The spirit of God invades the church and the church isn't a steel box on Chicago Drive. It's you. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God fills your life. It fills you and it prompts you and it calls you not to indulge everything you want, but to obey him. Why? Because there's people out there who haven't yet been made righteous and God is not okay with them living apart from him while you have the full knowledge of the gospel. Do you believe it? Do you believe it enough to let the gospel transform you, not on the outside, but starting in the inside? 
If we allow the Spirit of God to get to work inside of us, eventually, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. Our actions will change, but not because we're trying to prove it, because we are being like Christ. Our being has been transformed. We will become like a spring of living water in a dry and desperate land. We will be a point of gathering for life because people will look and say, I want to believe in something that much. I want to have something that gives me peace in the storms. But the problem is we think our behaviors, our actions dress us up and make us look good enough, but they don't in the eyes of one. And the one is the only judge, the Lord himself self. The only way to look the part to God is to be the part in Christ. So my question for you is, do you believe that God has more for you in faith? Not in actions. Your actions will come. But in faith, do you believe that God's purposes and his righteousness are fully conveyed to you in Christ? And there's nothing you have to do or be other than to receive Jesus fully. It is not cheap grace. It is the most lavish, expensive gift ever given. Do you believe it? Because here's the thing. If you do, you will become, well, a spring of living water. The world will gather to the spring. People will want to come and hear. Many will reject it, but many will come to know the Lord. Many will come to know the Lord. But the problem is when we as a church live by a certain set of cultural rules or isms, we lose something. Uh, One of the Scottish theologians, I, I forgot to write his name down that I was reading this week, he said this, the Christian under the law is the most miserable parody of the real thing. Think about that. The Christian who lives by rules and regulations and trying to earn their salvation. Now, I'm not saying you should just go out and live as you want. I'm saying there there is good and normal and right things to do. But here's the thing. The Christian living by the law to earn their salvation is a miserable parody of the real thing. May that never be said of us. May our claim to believe in God be backed up over the years-long transformation of our life from the inside out. And may that, may that hope that the righteousness of Christ has been conveyed to us make us brave enough to believe that if he can forgive all our sins, past, present, and future, if he can forgive them all, then maybe indeed he can, by his spirit, transform a life as broken as mine. You are not ruined. You are righteous. And that righteousness is supposed to be on display for the world to see, not just in good rule following, but in living like Christ. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for who you are. And we pray, God, that you would give us the courage to believe, to hold on close to who you are, and to just to lay away all the things that we feel have, um, have merit, have value, God, the things that we think maybe you'll love us more for. May we just be in Christ. May we believe in Jesus Christ in such a way that our life will be transformed, that your spirit would fill us and you would call us to a new obedience in great and in small ways so that we could obey and learn Learn what it is to just be in your presence and not have to prove our worth 
but just be loved by the God who proved our, our worth by dying for us. Lord Jesus Christ, we love you. We thank you for the free gift of grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, join me as we close with a song. Um, when I worked at SeaWorld in San Diego, there were, uh, we would do dives into Shamu's tank and do different things to repair it. Um, and it's interesting, the faith you put in hydraulic gates because there's a couple orcas on the other side of the tank, and when you get under there, you can hear them clicking and doing different things. It's just terrible. And I will never forget, I will never forget going into one of the pools, and I was doing something on the surface, and um, so you can't hear you can't hear as well when you're not under the water. And I was working on something, and I was like, oh, this is kind of crazy. Like, you know, I just kept looking over my shoulder. Why? Because I knew something was over there. But I was in there because I believed the gate would hold, right? And you could hear them sometimes, kidonk, hit the gate, and you're like, like, it just gets warmer in your wetsuit because you're like, I don't like you that, right? If, if I told you, if I told you that you were in a situation, you know, if you're in that pool and it won't work, Nothing's gonna hold that, that killer whale back. Would you get in? And if you would, come see me afterwards. We'll talk about practical logic. You shouldn't. I've seen it when the whale, it didn't hurt, it hurt him, but uh, the whale went to save a diver one time because one of the trainers didn't know that there was a diver. Even the flag was up and everything. And so what, uh, it's not Shamu, they have different names, went down and picked him up by her nose, 38 feet down, and swam him to the surface. She cleared the surface by 18 feet, and then he landed on his back. She was trying to save him. She gave him the bends. It was awesome. Um, but here's the thing. If I told you that you would go into that situation and the gate wouldn't hold, would you go? No. I want to tell you something. Your own righteousness won't save you, period. But you have been given the righteousness of Christ. And you can live with confidence that it's his righteousness that has done all the work. It will prevent what you fear most from being true. That whatever the accuser has said about your past has ruined you, he will prevent that from being true because you are in Christ. You're in the safest place. You're in Christ. Friends, I invite you, don't live a lie. Don't live a lie that says you can earn it. Live in grace that says you have a life that is filled with purpose and hope because of Jesus Christ. That song says, you are my one defense. You are my righteousness. Lord, I need you. May that be our prayers. We go into this week and experience in some measure the grace of God knowing that our defender has yet to bend the knee to this culture. And our righteousness has not buckled but he stands firm as our defense and our righteousness in this world. He has defeated our past and he has given us a future. Live into it, church. 
as you go from this place. Make sure you grab your devotions on your way out. It'll really help you as you get into the Word of God throughout the week and you walk with them on your own. Also, when you text that number, 94,000, live nine, and when you do that, if you wanna be in a group, please sign up. We're forming a group. Uh, we have a groups mixer this afternoon. Be a part of it. We'd love to have you in as you go from this place. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, stick around, talk for a while. The causeway's right out there. Enjoy some coffee and be the church. You are dismissed.